Hello and welcome back to the Marvelous Cinema Podcast. I am your co-host Matthew. And I'm your local host Henry. And we are back this week to talk about good scenes in bad or not so good movies. Mm-hmm. Disappointing movies. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So if, you know, when defining a bad film, it can be a bit dodgy. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just kind of stuff we found disappointing or people in general find disappointing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, before we get stuck in, you can check us out on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Marvel Cinema Podcast on Instagram and at Cinema Marvelous on Twitter. We do review, um, yeah, and all around goodness on there. Mm-hmm. You can get stuck into that as well if you want some more from us. And yeah, let's let's get on with today's topic. Yeah. Where would um, you like to start? Um. Okay. So for me, I feel like a pretty, a pretty famous one, like a pretty well-known good scene in an otherwise not so good movie is the superman returns plane rescue scene yeah i've got this one as well yeah i think it's kind of famous almost like i feel like it's the go-to scene of like an incredible like holy shit moment in a film and then the film kind of like just kind of just doesn't i wouldn't say it goes downhill real quick but i just think it kind of goes on for three hours and doesn't really gain the same amount the same amount as like momentum or character that this one scene kind of did um yeah it's sort of like it happens and you think all right here we go the film's gonna get going now yeah and then it just sort of dissipates yeah it doesn't carry that energy energy forward very much um and i think it's unfortunate because the director is not a good person but um the director did say that um, if he could remake this film, he would have started the film with this plane scene, um, which, when you think about how that would change the story, it would cut out a good hour from that movie, which is already three hours long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like that's a pretty good way of this. It's also a pretty good example of like your film isn't going to be better just because it's longer and therefore can do more stuff. If anything, it means that. You've got a lot more work to do, and if the work's not good, it's going to really show. Um, mm. And I think that's the case with this movie quite a lot of the time, which I don't really hate. I don't hate this movie, really. Um, no, I don't. I think it's... I don't really think it does anything wrong. Yeah. I say, it's just... It just feels long. Yeah. I and it, feel yeah. every minute. Yeah, you <laughs> In really... a good way. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's kind of a... Um, a weird experience because it feels like a nostalgia trip that goes on for too long and then Mm. kind of not only it recaptures the same kind of baseline idea of like the john williams score and the the general sort of atmosphere of the film but at the same time it never really captures the actual kind of like romanticism or anything like that to do with the actual original two films at least Mm. um it just sort of brings it back but doesn't really change it and at the same time doesn't really get the old feeling down pretty well either um no it just ends up because because this is as we're recording this this is today's review yeah it is yeah for our instagram <laughs> um but it just doesn't feel it ultimately it feels like it's actually held back mm-hmm. by the nostalgia because you're constantly comparing it yeah um i feel like it's a uh, it's just like whenever I hear about in the early 2000s when um, they were going to reboot this character, they always sound, at the very least, far more interesting than the version that we got. Like whether it's Nicolas Cage or it's J.J. Abrams or whatever, it was always some, it was always going to change the mythos or whatever you want to call it. Like it was always going to change it fundamentally and really mm-hmm. like really re- reboot it. Whether it would have been good or not, that's up for debate. We have no idea there's going to be more script rewrites whatever but having a sequel to two popular films from the 70s and kind of 80s um that i don't think did you have plays in pop culture but i don't think those two first donna films are as quite revered or well known as like the star wars films for example no i don't think they are yeah but they are like you know people know about them i just don't think that they know they don't. People don't go back and watch them very often. I feel because um, mm, I feel like it's one of those things where it's not, it's not the continuation of the same story. If you know what I mean. 
Yeah. Like if you're a Star Wars fan, you're always going to go back and watch the original films because it's the star of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas those Superman films are sort of, yeah, they were there. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to watch a Superman film, modern audiences will probably be more likely to go to Man of Steel or, or even this film. Yeah, I think it's it's odd because two, the two divisive films, the recent entries into the Superman kind of movie franchise, um, I mean three if we're counting Batman v Superman. So all the last three big appearances of him have been very kind of people either love it or hate it or somewhere in between. Um, it hasn't quite landed as well as with audiences as like Iron Man or whatever. Uh, in the past 10 years mm-hmm. so it's kind of like at the moment at least and i hope it changes because i think the character deserves it i hope it changes but superman is kind of an archaic sort of thing in the pop culture mind mm-hmm. kind of like it's kind of like the, ori- the original superhero but not relevant anymore because you've gone past it which in, in my opinion we definitely haven't i think this character is still relevant today definitely but yeah i think uh, i guess there's probably a conception of him generally from general audiences that he's a bit of a boring character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is quite unfair when you consider what they have tried to do with him in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this scene, this plane scene in which we see him return, and for the first time really in the film we hear the John Williams theme play. Um, and also, I feel like it's important to kind of recognise the the sort of attention to detail in this scene is not just like he catches a plane. It is like he attempts to stop it by holding the wing and then the wing breaks down and then mm. he has to go, has to fly through the wing to get to the actual plane. Then he like kind of spirals around the plane as it's going and then gets in front of it and then just catches it. But even then he's not really stopping it. And then he like at the end, he kind of like holds it and like you see like the metal like buckle under the weight of like, yeah, like you see, you see the ripple, don't you? Yeah, you see like a ripple of like just the plane kind of shifting in what direction it's going, <laughs> um, and the the top half like crushes almost and almost kills some people, <laughs> and and then um, yeah, he lands it in the middle of a of a baseball field, I think, which is like one of the most American iconic icon uh, iconography sort of things ever. So it's kind of like a weird, I think like a perfect sort of if you were to say to some producers that I'm going to make the next Superman film, you would do this scene and this this would definitely sell it, you know? Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, the movie's three hours long and it's not it's not doing what it says it's doing. <laughs> really. No, it doesn't. I mean, like, like you said, I think one of, the, one, of the, one of the best parts about this is actually the fact that the, the way in which this film does work for this particular scene is the, the idea of him having been away. Mm-hmm. And the like the air force aren't expecting him to save the day if you know what i mean like they like an unidentified object enters on the radar and they don't know what it is yeah and yeah. you can you, you can like imagine the fact that you know the the jets see him because there are two jets accompanying the plane mm-hmm. uh the jets see him and then perhaps the icing on the cake is when i think lois looks out of the window yeah and sees like Superman fly past, mm-hmm. and you see like the recognition in her face because she knows, like who it is. She knows it's Superman. Yeah, it's it's like kind of the promise of the movie. The fact that he's going to come back, and it's kind of going to be, at least to begin with, this sort of like majestic, sort of like amazing thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, a big problem for me, I I think I wrote this in my review, is the Lex Luthor. Like the Lex Luthor plot is so. It's so, I don't know, just, I don't know, like, moustache-twirling evil, but the plan doesn't really make sense, but what's going to go with it because it's evil, <laughs> sort mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, uh, I, I, I mentioned it in mine as well, in that it's just the same as the first film. It is, yeah. It's the same uh, villain premise as the first one. Mm-hmm. It's Although, just... I'd say I actually prefer it in this one. Do you? Yeah. I mean, the general performance, although it pains me to say it, given the fact that you know, he's, Kevin Space is the second aspect in this film that uh, is rather that. taboo now. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think the performance, it gets a few more scenes, he's built up a bit better. So I generally prefer this version to the Gene Hackman one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that. But at the same time, it's 
it's also confusing because this version technically technically is the Gene Hackman version. Yeah, and Brandon Ralph technically is Christopher Reeve. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're watching this film and the tone isn't quite the same and it's not as cartoony and it's a bit more grounded, it's a bit more somber, and these characters are a bit less like larger than life. Um, it feels like really weird to me because I just don't know what the film is going for. Is this a reboot? Because it should be a reboot of anything. I don't understand why it wasn't a reboot. It's just confusing to every to every general audience member. It's just so confusing because it says, or at least like behind the scenes, they said up. They said to everyone, this is a sequel to Superman one and two, but not the actual two, the Donna Cut two. And three and four don't no longer count. Um, and this film takes place ten years after. Um, for some reason, Superman's just been gone this entire time. We'll explain it in like one scene and just move on from it. Um, yeah, it's it's just odd. And um, yeah, and also there's a lot of just. And you know, I love a good somber, depressing superhero movie. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love it. I really do. But this film doesn't really feel like it's earning it. Um, there's many scenes where he's just flying about and it's some really sad music playing and he feels a bit lonely and he goes he, he creeps on his girlfriend at one point he like looks through the window or the, looks through the wall with his x-ray vision mm-hmm. kind of just looks at his girlfriend and her at this point white air husband and kind of just like you know just kind of sees what's going on and like you haven't got permission mate don't do that <laughs> <laughs> it's the oddest oddest choices that have been made throughout that film and I just don't from the ground up, I just don't get the choices that were made. But there is this one great scene in, in like the middle of the film, which is rewatchable. I watch it all the time just because it's a great scene by itself, and you don't need the rest of the film to, to enjoy it. Um, yeah, it's a weird one that film. <laughs> do you want to move on? You can do. Um, my first one's also a comic book film. Mm-hmm. Start of X Men Origins Wolverine. Mm, yeah, I would agree. <laughs> um, it's really it's pretty much tiny. I think it goes over the credits, doesn't it? Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, it's basically Wolverine um, and Sabretooth going through like, various wars and the battling through them all. I think you have the American Civil War. I think you, have, you definitely have the D-Day part. I remember that. Mm-hmm, yeah. I think Vietnam's in there as well. Mm-hmm. I think it ends in Vietnam. Yeah, because, yes, they're, they're there at the start, aren't they? Yeah, I'm just trying to remember it at the moment. I like I remember it's, it's like a really in, enjoyable introduction to the characters, and also it sets up the bond between them quite well. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. if the film doesn't completely capitalise on that, the fact that you, you know these characters have been together for a very long time, yeah, yeah they have a relationship, mm-hmm. and it plays with the aspect that I suppose. The only other film that really plays with it is the sequel to this, the second, The Wolverine. Mm-hmm. In the, he's been alive for a very long time. Yeah, he's lived through some wars. <laughs> Which you know, it's he yeah, quite literally lived through wars, as we've seen here. Which is something mm-hmm. that you know it might be mentioned or referenced in some of the earlier X Men films, but mm-hmm. it's never really addressed like it is is here. And even even in the film, it isn't really addressed. <laughs> not it's really. Just an interesting aspect that I feel like could have been built on a lot more, in that this guy has been alive and yeah, I've seen some shit. Mm. Um, yeah, and that, that, that's all it really is. It's just an interesting sequence that explores Wolverine in the way that hasn't been before and is followed by. I'll be honest, it's not a good film, but I, it is a bit of a guilty pleasure for me. It is enjoyable because it's so absurd. <laughs> yeah, I do quite enjoy the film. Yeah, it's. I think it's. I mean, it's competition between this and Dark Phoenix for me as the worst in the series, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, like, this one's at least more enjoyable because so many things happen. Like, at some point, Will I Am is in the movie. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we get a bit gambit as well. Yeah, I guess we do. Um, and Deadpool. <laughs> oh, yeah, best part. Yeah, um, but yeah, that film's kind of a, it's a weird mess of just like cramming in different mutant characters that are kind of famous, 
but not really making them into characters. So, like, it's one of those things where, so, like, a comic person, like, freaks out over the over the introduction of, like, the Will I Am character or anything like that. Or, um, Blob, there we go, that's his name. Um, people, like, freak out over that, but in the film, because it's just, it's in such a, like, a weird rush, that film is, mm. um, that these characters never really stick at all. It's just sort of, we get, we get an admittedly pretty, really good uh, opening montage through history with these characters. And then the movie introduces like a new group. And then this group in like the space of like 10 minutes breaks up. And then we're like 20 years later. And then, then Wolverine's wife dies in 10 minutes time. <laughs> and then it kind of keeps on doing this thing where it goes, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And it's one of those, as much as I enjoy um, Solo, the Star Wars story, um, it kind of reminds me of that film in the sense that um, it's kind of like a checklist of like, this is how he got his jacket, this is how he got a bike, this is how he got the 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 the, the clothes, this is how he got the skeleton. It kind of just feels like they're going through it really quickly and just kind of just telling you that someone died, <laughs> he got some clothes, he killed some people, he got his memory wiped. Um, instead of having just like a kind of organic story about it all. Um, yeah, but this one scene is definitely, it's kind of like a, it's a really good montage because similar to like, I guess, Watchmen, I guess, it's kind of like lets you know the entire history without breaking away from the characters. Oh um, yeah, I forgot about Watchmen. That's a great yeah. intro. It's kind of like a run through the world, the world that we're going to be in the film for, and also the sort of main duo relationship. Um, and the film, the montage at some point even like like stops and has actual moments of like choices happen within them. Like we see um, we see Logan stop Sabretooth from firing his gun on innocent people and Sabretooth, you know, being a bit too mental. <laughs> um, but yeah, we get these little moments in this sequence that let us know the character's dynamics, even though there's no real dialogue or anything like that. It's just all visual kind of storytelling. And it's really cool. And then <laughs> just the movie happens. <laughs> mm. Yep. Yeah. All sorts of goes out the window. Yeah. <laughs> it's a shame. And we get those yeah. CGI claws. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, do you have another one? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, for me, I think... This is a weird one because I don't think it's a bad film. I would say it's a good film. Um, I really like it a lot. But I guess in the, you know, in general, it's known as a bad film. <laughs> uh, Spider-Man 3. Um, and for me, I'm going to pick the scene. For me, there's a lot of good scenes. But for me, I think the standout scene that everyone kind of agrees, agrees upon is a good scene in a bad movie, maybe, is the, the Sandman origin sort of scene. Mm, um, I have this on my list as well. I agree with you that it's not. It's not worthy of a bad film title. Mm-hmm, yeah, um, there it's... are a lot of good things in it, and this is this is this is actually this, this is up there with the like origin or the changing into the villain of Doc Hawk in Spider Man Two for me. Yeah, I'd I think agree. It's the same level. I think there's a lot of in those Sam Raimi movies. I think there's a lot of um, just really great scenes of like villains coming into their own sort of like moments in the first one we have um willem dafoe talking to the mirror for two two minutes straight <laughs> and changing personalities the entire way through um we get the doc Hawk hospital scene in the second one and then in the third one i feel like we kind of get one for um two characters this time around i feel like we get a really good moment with eddie brock and um flint marco uh, sandman in this movie the green, the green Goblin, however, they kind of just rush past him. <laughs> I will admit. Um, but yeah, in this film, I really, really love the scene a lot. And I think it's incredible that how much work was put into it. I mean, they had to like render out individual grains of sand and have the camera move in from being, move out from being really, really close and these rocks look like really big and then zooming out and having it be like these little tiny granules of, of sand and then having that sand vaguely form like a human body but then not really and then slowly entirely entirely visually just kind of let you know the character's emotion even though there's no one actually there doing it <laughs> um mm. that you'd like let 
I mean, it's a weird scene because like I'm, I love it so much because I I know the emotions that are going through the entire thing. I know the struggles. I know the pain. You kind of it all translates very well, um, and you get the scene. You just know what it's all about. But the amazing part of that is that there's nothing actually real that you're watching. <laughs> like nothing about it is real. There's no actor doing it really. No, there it's isn't. Till the very end, I guess. Um, I mean that one scene where he kind of he kind of forms his body for the first time. And he holds his hand, his um, head in his hands, and like he's all made out of sand. <laughs> and like he had this amazing close up on his like sand eyes, <laughs> and it's like an amazing, it's an amazing moment because like I look at it and I go, wow, like that's amazing that I can tell what this is all about and what this guy's feeling. And it's I'm looking at the sand, <laughs> and it's yeah, it's what it's an amazing moment, and I can't I can't praise it enough for like a film that yes is very messy like it's very there's a lot of stuff going on um but having the time to like do that for like a good four minutes is amazing a testament to that film for like it is messy because it has so much so much going on but like it's because they care about everything that's going on at the same time um yeah yeah i always i always think about that when he tries to grab the uh, the uh, what was it necklace yeah, but the picture of his daughter in which you know again we're talking visuals no words needed there mm-hmm. you completely understand what Sam what Flint Marco's motives are you know why he's doing this he's doing it for his daughter and it's a, like a perfect representation of his core attributes for the rest of the film mm-hmm. yeah um, I always liked it as a kid that scene I don't know why because you know for a kid that's kind of depressing <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I yeah I, I I really appreciate that thing. I really it's peak Raimi. Oh, absolutely! It's him having isn't his him saying, saying to himself, "I I need four minutes by myself to make a scene." <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of work went into about animators and all these sort of things, but I feel like it's a moment in that film where he just goes, "I need to calm down." See <laughs> 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 what's going on. We've got. I mean, in that movie, I mean, I do like it a lot, but. I mean, I mean, we got like three pretty big main villains, and we've got the black suit, and we've got Gwen Stacy. Like, we forget about this. There's Gwen Stacy in this movie. She, yeah, there uh, isn't. There's uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, isn't it? Yeah, she has like four scenes, maybe all of which are kind of pointless, but also kind of, I don't know. It could have been good if she had more time, but yeah. Um, and also, I like, still to this day, and it's it's been. 13 years since this film came out and I till this day I have no idea when uh, the scene transitions from um, Sandman walking out to Thomas Hayden Church actually doing like walking out as well I don't I don't like know that transition when it happens till to this day um, and I think that's amazing this is a, a feat of like you know um, CGI work but also kind of not just for spectacles sort of sick is entirely emotional in character mm. um yeah i love that scene so much <laughs> it's so good yeah it's a real highlight you got another one? Yeah, one yeah um i just realized almost in all of mine are uh, comic book films i think mine are too just because it's popular films that are kind of bad <laughs> yeah um, I'm gonna go for one that you're going to hate me for. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, it's a superhero film, but it's not a comic book film. Mm-hmm. For me, it is um, David Dunn versus the Beast at the start of Glass. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's fair. Now, putting aside whether this is a bad film or not, <laughs> I'm going to say that it was a bit of a disappointment for me personally. Okay. That's where I'm going to leave it. <laughs> um, but I re- I really enjoyed the opening. Maybe I don't know how I don't know how long it is. Maybe opening twenty minutes. Maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe thirty minutes. Maybe. Um, of David Dunn working with his son to track down criminals. Mm-hmm. And what have you? And he's got this special ability where he bumps into people and he can see the bad things they've done. Um, I love the fact, especially when he when he bumps into um, I forgot his name, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. And he sees the th- um, all tied up. And I just love the 
the clip the clip that I rewatched specifically for this is just the fight of David Dunn versus the Beast, mm-hmm. which I think is just so well handled. It's quite short. Mm-hmm. It's sort of quite brutal, but it's just the way it's shot is brilliant. I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Actually, the way that Kevin or the Beast comes in and you're on the ceiling and the camera's upside down and you just see on the bottom, you see David Dunn in his green waterproof. Poncho. <laughs> yeah, with his green poncho and the four, four or five cheerleaders behind him. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as the Beast sort of comes in, scrambles up the wall. The use of camera angles and the converted the camera angles in this scene particularly is quite effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I've forgotten is like they they play sort of catch with a big wooden table. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> but, and then the bit I completely forgotten is the beast throws the table to the side and literally crushes one of the cheerleaders against the wall. Oh yeah, I never. And then when I saw that in the cinema, I had a moment where like I jumped almost. I kind of looked around me like that just happened. <laughs> it's just it just slams against the wall and it's sort of like oh yeah oh my god. I just move on. <laughs> and then the, the other cheerleaders come and drag her away. Yeah, it's horrific, but also kind of like it's for me. I mean, for me, it's a. I would say it's a good film. I completely understand the idea that it was disappointing, or so to some people it wasn't. It wasn't a good film to begin with, but. For me, I think it worked on the levels that I, I needed it to. It's not perfect. I don't, I'm not saying that at all. Um, I do think it has problems, but I do think it's very good. But I have to admit, whenever I think about the great moments in this film, I do think about the first half an hour, and especially this moment where... I mean, for me, the breathtaking moment for me was... Because I love that character. I just adore that character so much, the David Dunn character. I think he's mm-hmm. one of my favourite just protagonists ever, really. Um, and that really amazing slow motion shot of um him crowbarring out like the metal bar that these people are attached attached to Mm. um it's just an amazing moment i feel like having it be i mean slow motion the sound designer has like so much bass and echo to it um the iconic sort of green poncho which is amazing that his outfit is still that today (laughs) And like just having that moment for me, I mean, for me, it was kind of like might be I might be reading into it too much, but for me, it was kind of like a moment of like referencing or at least completing the idea that he can save people from the first Unbreakable film when he failed in some ways to save the girl who was attached to the radiator um, because he was too late. Um, it was sort of like him finally getting there in time and being confident enough, confident enough to do that. But again, it might be I might be going reading into that too much, but also just by itself anyway, it's just a great moment for me. And I feel like, yeah, that scene, I mean, them going out out the window and landing and there's so many parts in that fight that are kind of just, it's not like a, an amazingly choreographed, like ballet sort of fight. Like we've seen Cat America do some really visceral kind of amazing things in his films. And we've seen The Matrix and all these other things. And these really pristinely crafted, like organic sort of fight scenes. Um, but this one felt very much more like they're just trying out different methods until one of them works. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to throw a table. That didn't work. I'm going to crush your like, rib cage. That didn't work. Okay, let's go outside. <laughs> it's kind of like it's like a bit of like a one-up game of like, let's do this. No, not working. Let's do this. Um, yeah, it's a and, very rough and tumble fight. Like, it's clearly yeah. two people that aren't like properly trained and stuff. Yeah. it, And I would definitely agree that, for me, one of the flaws of that movie was definitely... Again, I like I do like the film quite a lot actually. I got quite emotional watching it, but also it's I feel like the ending fight is in particularly it kinda of sticks out in your mind as kind of like a this is a bit awkward. <laughs> yeah, it's clumsy, isn't it? It's not it doesn't have the same effect as this fight at the start. It not at all. I think it's because of the open space, the broad daylight, the the very kind of I wouldn't say contrived, but I would say kind of just a bit forced kind of like why are we fighting here right now doing this um but yeah i feel like having that fight at the end was was kind of like a if i could just put the the first fight and in, in the last half an hour of this movie and maybe just move this last fight into like the first half an hour <laughs> i would have think i thought the movie would have went down better with general audiences at least because it would have had that sort of at least a good strong kind of 
physical sort of ending. Um, again, for me, the film works much more on a emotional level and a, and a kind of a thematic level. I still, to this day, listen, listen to that music at the end when they were they put up, they upload the uh, videos of them doing their superpowers things onto the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always get emotional listening to it or just even watching the scene. Um, but yeah, I feel like, yeah, definitely for me, I think his flaws, M. Night Shyamalan's flaws as a director kind of come out whenever he has, has to do anything overtly, I, think, I guess, physical. Um, even in his good, like, even in his great films, uh, like Signs, um, there are moments in, the, in those films where there's just a straight-up fight scene and it just doesn't really work. <laughs> um, it's still got that same methodical thriller kind of horrific sort of visual language compared to action and how that's usually at least usually edited and put together um but yeah i think i think it worked best in the first half an hour the action portion of the film at least for me um yeah i would agree that 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 first fight is really great (laughs) and yeah it's so good (laughs) yeah yeah it's a good fight yeah um do you have another one yeah um my next one bit of an odd one because I don't like this film at all as a narrative, <laughs> as a and anything meaningful, as a piece of entertainment that came out in 2009. Um, but I'm going to call out a little bright spot, I think, um, in Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Um, the Interesting, fo- okay. The forest battle. Um, oh, yeah. There's... Yeah. I remember, even as a kid, when I loved these movies, I feel like that needs to be said. When I was a kid, I loved these first, I would say, three Transformers movies, and I thought they were very good um, because there was explosions, and then there was cars, and then there was more robots, I guess. Um, and I would just skip past all the Sandwich Wiki stuff and this music. <laughs> Same, I used to do that as well. Yeah, I mean, to this day, even, if, I want, if I'm going to rewatch those films, I kind of going with Fawn until the actual Michael Bay unleashed moments, <laughs> you know. Um, but I th- there is a moment in this film where it kind of becomes a bit kind of good <laughs> for a moment. It's, it's just after Sam Witwicky has its brain sort of like fiddled around with by a little robot. <laughs> um, and something to do with some, there's some sort of MacGuffin that's world ending and there's some sort of something like this and the all spark and there's Megatron. Old Spark. The old Spark. Um, there's Megatron. I think he came back just before the scene. Um, and yeah, this scene starts out pretty running the mill, Michael Bay having fun. Um, and then the film, out of nowhere, by the way, this will tell you all you, all you know about Michael Bay. Um, there's no real hint towards the idea that a forest is nearby. But at some point, you'll notice in one of the cuts, we just end up in a forest. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we're in a forest, and then all of a sudden the frame kind of widens up, and all of a sudden it's IMAX. Um, it's really big, and it's really crisp and clear, and it's has that a bit more darkness to the image, I guess. And um, the frame kind of just the frame finally, I feel, allows for these robots and these big epics or battles to have the space to actually do what they're actually doing. Um, mm-hmm. As much as I love Michael Bay's action, and I really do, um, the Transformers movies are ones where it's not just his filmmaking approach that's too much. It's also what's actually on screen this time because there's so much metal, spindly objects just doing things. Mm. So if you put that into a 16 by 9 ratio... And it's just a lot of shaky, shaky cam and a lot of teal and orange and a lot of metal and all that. It can get really confusing. But having an IMAX frame and a lot of clear wires for once um, and a lot of slowness to the fight where punches kind of have an impact and they land and they kind of react to it for once and kind of don't get up straight away. Um, it's a weird moment of, like, someone else directed directed this scene. <laughs> um, it, widens up and we have these really great uh, moments. I'm not saying it's a deep scene or it makes a scene any it makes a story any better but I just think as a singular action scene in a convoluted as hell film it's 
randomly very good and it ends with Optimus Prime um dying. Um and again it's That shook me as a kid, by the way. Oh Sam, yeah. When I was a kid, I thought that was like killing Batman in the Batman movie. <laughs> you know? Um it's it was crazy to me that they did that. Um and I thought, you know, nine year old Henry thought that I was you know, storytelling at its finest. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, cinema. Yeah, that was cinema back then uh, to me. Uh, I never, I never very well, and I guess I'm going to call out James here. James Rodham, if you're listening, this is about you. <laughs> um, I, I remember my friend James went to see the film before I went to see the film, the second film, and I was so out of my mind hyped for this film that I would, like when we were walking home from school, the entire time, I would just question him as to what happened in the film. <laughs> like, I would just ask him, what happened in the film? Did, did this happen in the trailer that was in the trailer? What? Did Optimus Prime really die? <laughs> um, for a good, like, half an hour every day, I would just ask him what happened in Transformers 2, you know? Um, because it was that important to me for some reason. Um, did he ever his... respond? Oh, yeah, yeah, he did. He would tell me, and I praise him so much for dealing with that, because... He didn't give a shit <laughs> at all. Um, I don't blame him. He was probably smarter than me back then, definitely, um, about it. Um, and, yeah, it's just a it's a weird, odd moment for me where if you could just take that 10-minute forest battle scene and make a movie that was in that tone, in that thumb-making style, um, with that many stakes involved, um, you could have really you know, made that second film, The Empire Tracks Back to the old wonky first film, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it, it, you know, it's not that, really. <laughs> it's a three-hour film that's just doing so many different things all the time. Um, yeah. Do you remember the scene at all? I, I have vague recollections. I mainly remember it because Optimus Prime dies. Yeah. That's like my major thing for it. I remember as a kid, it was like, oh my God, I'm shook. Mm-hmm. Look at this. Emotions running high. Can't believe this. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Michael Bay. <laughs> you are Jesus. Now, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it t- taps into the idea of spectacle a lot, mm-hmm. as, as it would do. Um, I just remember as well, like, just the wood flying everywhere. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, the sound design by itself is amazing in that scene. Like, the, the wood like, splintering everywhere, and you hear, like, the the actual tree like breaking apart and the metal like clanging together. Mm-hmm. There's oh my god, there's a great sound effect that I've in my mind, I still got it in my mind, like in my memory bank. Um is <laughs> like it's like that there's a moment I think at the beginning of the scene where I think Optimus or maybe Megatron punches either one of them. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um and there's this great sound effect where it's just really visceral and really raw. It's kind of like the metal equivalent of someone like getting their teeth knocked out <laughs> but it's metal and it kind of like whines in a way it's it was a great sound effect that i still to this day kind of have in my mind um and you know i mean for one thing i will admit that the transformers films are amazing at visual spectacle and sound kind of quality of just inventive event constantly inventive like just whatever you can just do metal clanging together sound effects and space lasers <laughs> um yeah, and I feel like that scene is a microcosm of the best parts of that franchise, which mm-hmm. are, which you know, don't get that much time to breathe in that in those three-hour movies. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember I'm going to say this. So I had to watch this film for my course, <laughs> right. my uni course. Um, yeah. I hated it. Of course. <laughs> I hated it with a passion. I even said in the lecture that. Um, in the lecture in the seminar in front of everybody that it felt like it was edited by somebody on crack <laughs> that's how much I hated it this is going to be interesting the film is Resident Evil oh okay have you seen this film the the first one yeah the first one I have on a on like a night with my friends when we won a nick one out of it <laughs> <laughs> I hated this film. However, there's one film that I, I wouldn't even say it's a good scene. Mm-hmm. I like the premise of the scene <laughs> and how weird and out there it is. Right. And it is the scene with the laser hallway. Oh, I remember this. Yeah. So 
but hey, to begin with, it is impossible to know what is going on because of the editing. It is, yeah, it's infuriating. <laughs> but basically, what, what what you can deduce <laughs> is that they go into the hallway and some defense system gets activated. And I think there's, I'm pretty sure it's like four of them, but you only see three of them die. Right. Which is bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so the laser grid comes on. It's like one of them ones where the laser like, moves down the hallway and trying to kill anything that's in there. Mm-hmm. So the first one moves across. Everybody ducks apart from, strangely, the woman that is furthest away from the laser. <laughs> it doesn't make sense considering she has the most time to dodge it. What's she doing over into the TIF? Just looking away. Yeah. So she gets decapitated by her first laser. Yeah. With some truly peak early 2000 CGI. And I remember that very well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and someone gets their hand cut off. Mm-hmm. So at which point there's three of them still alive, I think. Mm-hmm. Then another laser comes. Um, and what's quite interesting is that the, one of the guys tries to jump over it. Mm-hmm. The laser like, changes position and cuts him in half anyway. <laughs> it has right. a really, really funny reaction shot. Yeah. Where he's like, oh no. <laughs> um, and then <laughs> the main one. The head of the team does some weird acrobatics where he like hangs onto the ceiling and holds himself prone to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. But like the, the fact that it's on also at this point, right? That happens. But there are three of them still alive at that point. Right. You only see one of you only see one of them die, but miraculously two are dead. <laughs> and right. just and again, it's down to the editing. I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> However, the reason that I've got this on this list is because it's, it does something that I don't really think I've seen ever done before. Mm-hmm. And in these scenes, as there typically is in these kind of scenes, there's somebody on a computer and somebody else screaming at the person on the computer to hurry up. <laughs> yeah, to try and shut it down. But normally, like, what you'll have is they shut it down when the thing's literally inches from killing somebody. Mm-hmm. However, this kind of does the opposite in that there's, like, a final laser and the guy's getting ready to jump over it. All of a sudden, it just turns into a massive grid that's in, in, inescapable. Mm-hmm. And it runs through him, so it's slightly diced him into little cubes. Yeah. But then the guy on the computer manages to shut it off literally after... A second after it's passed through him. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's on this list mainly because, in a premise, it's interesting to me that they didn't choose to, to do the traditional you were saved in the nick of time thing. Yeah, they could have done that. Um, the rest of the film is an atrocity. I mean, I don't disagree with you. I've seen it once, and it was a while ago, and I was drinking whilst watching it because it was that bad. <laughs> uh, why did you have to watch that for your uni thing? Honestly, <laughs> no idea. I mean, I don't get that. <laughs> the next topic was post-humanism. Right. So yeah, I didn't understand the lecture at all. And then we've been recorded. <laughs> no, I, I know. Yeah, you can hear me. Um... <laughs> no. No, but he uh, he struggles to get his ideas across. That's fair enough. Yeah. And then there was something in the, in the seminar about communism. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, um, <laughs> that, so yeah, me, that's my entry. To me, that's the, the strangest thing to me for some reason is the idea of watching that film for a film class. I know. <laughs> and we even, we even asked, and one of the people in our seminar, seminar said... We were given like a load of questions for answer about it, and one of the guys in the seminar group just said, "I just don't think it's that deep." <laughs> it's not. It definitely isn't. Like one of the questions was, "What does the virus represent?" And we're just like, "I don't know." The virus and the plot and the. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the lecturer said it was to do with communism and Red Scare and Soviet Russia. Oh, Despite off. the fact it was made in two thousand and two, which was twelve years after the collapse of the. Soviet Union, but oh, oh well. 
I fucking hate that so much. <laughs> oh, and um, one of the one of the people in the sem- seminar responded by saying, um, "He gave the lecturer gave all this stuff about it's about the red scare and it's about because the colours red and it's about a virus and it's about China and Soviet Union." Mm-hmm. And then one of the people in the cinema responded in this seminar responded by saying, "Yeah, but doesn't the protagonist wear red?" then there was silence silence no response i mean that's not a film you analyze to that degree at all i'm sorry (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i can't believe that um yeah i think uh my my last one for this topic okay i didn't have that many um is (laughs) a franchise a franchise that technically has never got off the Ground, I guess. Um, they have done it. I guess. I guess three times now. Um, but Fantastic Four, um, specifically Fantastic Four: Rise of the Silver Surfer. Um, there was one scene in that otherwise, I would say bland, but not as bad as the other ones. I guess um, film yeah, that I think is genu- genuinely very, very good. Um, it is a scene in which we are first introduced to the Silver Surfer. And we have this scene in which the Human Torch kind of flies around the entirety of New York trying to catch him. Um, it's a scene that's, I get, I it's not like a story thing or like a thematic thing or a meaningful thing. It doesn't really add that much to the movie. But I feel like on a just a pure popcorn entertainment level, it's just an incredibly well done chase in which we see how the Silver Surfer's power kind of operates and how he can he can move through matter and he can move through buildings without smashing anything um and we see the sort of the the contrast with that with how the human torch flies which is very much kind of you know he burns whatever he, t- he touches and he breaks all these things on the way to trying to get him um but yeah and the end at the end of the scene he he catches him and he kind of strangles the human torch and he goes up into space and he just drops him, <laughs> and then he just lands. Um, it's I don't know why, but I just feel like it's always a standout moment in the otherwise pretty bland film. Um, I would say if I was going to rank the Fantastic Four film, I would say that this one's the best one um, because at least it's doing something different from the other attempts. Uh, it's not it for the most part. It's not Doctor Doom. It's not the origin story. It's not the you know. The thing we've seen done, I think, three times now, if we're counting the 90s VHS version. Um, but, yeah, it's just a an odd moment of, like, oh, the, the director did something here. You <laughs> um, had fun here, at least. Um, and, yeah, it's just a great sequence that I kind of... I wish... It's similar to Suitland Returns, the playing cat sequence. It's very much a... It kind of distills the entire movie into one scene... And the rest of the movie, unfortunately, doesn't really have as much as that one scene has to offer. Um, but yeah, would you do you know, do you remember this scene at all? I vaguely remember it. Yeah, I remember the one shot of uh, Silver Surf like approaching the water, mm, like yeah. he's above water or something. I'm, I remember that like as an image. And I vaguely remember some sort of chase through a city. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I I also did quite like certain scenes in these films mm-hmm. i think for me the major standpoint is that they are really well cast I, yeah i would agree um like if 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 they did like a you know the recently we've had the electro thing for spider-man 3 <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you if you were to turn around and say for the mcu version of these characters if you were to say oh we're going to use some of this the original cast i'd yeah. actually be, be pretty pleased Including Chris Evans? Apart from Chris Evans, you can't have Chris Evans. That's a no no. <laughs> <laughs> not not he's bad, but I just think it would be a problem. Yeah. Um but if if for example, um I don't think it's any secret between you and me that I desperately want John Krasinski and Emily Blunt to be Mr. Yeah. Mrs. Fantastic. You really do. <laughs> I do. I'm desperate for that. Um but I would I would if you weren't gonna go down that route I would like to see Owen. Gr- oh, I can't pronounce his first name. It's a weird name. <laughs> oh, Oyan. Oyan. 
It's Ian, but not quite. <laughs> Ian Grufford. If you would have cast yeah. him as Mr. Fantastic again, I'd kind of be pleased because I think he deserves a good chance. Because he's a really good actor. He is, yeah. Um, uh, and I'd also like to see Michael Chiklis do the thing again. He's perfect. I he think is he's great. He's a... Um... He is what you would imagine the human version of the thing would be, you know, um, not in a bad way. Like he just nails it and he just has that brute force sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I would agree. And I feel like also with the actor for Mr. Mr. Fantastic, I feel like that actor just, he just looks so much like the comic book character. There's something about his face and that, especially the gray hair thing. Um, I think this nails the look. Um, I don't know what it is. There's something about him and his just the way he looks about it. Um, and again, I don't think those movies have the best scenes for those act- actors to actually play. Um, I mean, for me, I feel like the one sort of, I would say, um, I don't know if I'd say bad, but I would say definitely the one that sticks out to me is is uh, the Jessica Alba casting from Sue Storm. For me, she's kind of just kind of the the biggest celebrity of the time. And she was just put into it because, I don't know, I don't really know, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I think she's the only one to me that, that kind of sticks out as kind of a, a shallow kind of casting that was done for popularity's sake. Mm. Um, I, even then, I, I think she, she does quite well. I, I think she wanted to do better than she did, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, mm. I feel there's a, there's a famous, not famous, but like a behind-the-scenes sort of trivia thing where um, in the scene in the second film where uh, Sue Storm kind of dies but comes back, don't worry about it <laughs> um, uh, she was told by the director Tim Story um, to stop crying so ugly and do pretty crying <laughs> um, yeah I, which, I think I've heard that before yeah which is not what you want to hear when you're acting and you're trying to do emotions for, like, for real as possible um, do pretty crying um, no <laughs> No Tim story. Um, One of the darker so yeah. aspects of Hollywood there. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you, you know, like, I also feel like they have pretty good chemistry as a family unit. Yeah, yeah, uh, they do. They seem to get, get along pretty well. Especially Chris Evans and Michael Chiklis together as, like, kind of brothers. Those two nail the kind of poking funny at each other but really love each other deep, like, um, really love each other kind of thing. Um mm. And I much prefer this cast and this sort of tone and this sort of chemistry over the Miles Teller, uh, Michael B. Jordan sort of thing going on in the reboot one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which, again, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff happened. <laughs> a lot of bad things happened. Maybe an actual physical fight. Um, but yeah, I feel like that film, even if it was going to even if it was going to be a really good film, in my mind, I, I always would have, would have preferred that these characters got like a a comic booky sort of family unit, family soap drama sort of tone compared to, you know, body horror um, mm. sci-fi that we got with the new one, um, which was interesting to start off from, just didn't, just didn't go well. Um, but yeah, I yeah, this is a good scene in it otherwise. Meh franchise of movies. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um I have a few more. Okay. Um, Gwen Stacy uh, spoiler alert, but Gwen Stacy's death in Amazing Spider Man two. Yeah, that's a great moment. <laughs> um I think it's really well done. It mirrors the comics quite well, from what I know. Mm-hmm. I haven't actually seen the comic panel in full. Yeah. I've just, I've just seen like shot for shot comparisons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, again, I, as I was younger, that storyline shook me. You know, that I was on a level with Optimus Prime dying. <laughs> Same, yeah. Um, yeah. But then, but seriously, it was, I think it was a really well done scene in an otherwise very rushed movie. Thank you, Sony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, yeah. That's, that's, that's it, really. That's all I can say. It's. I think for me, it's the. It's a culmination of her, the storyline in that movie that works the best, which is definitely Gwen and Peter's story. Mm. Um, but it's unfortunate that I have to say it's the storyline that works best because 
there's also six other storylines <laughs> um and all of them are kind of rushed together and kind of cobbled together mm. um again yeah it works because the strongest element of both those spider-man films was always a eight was always t- um andrew garfield yeah in the role but it was also perhaps second that andrew garfield and um emma stone mm. because they were they're honestly great together any, any scene where they were both together yeah it's you, you're guaranteed to enjoy it at least yeah, definitely. Because they just felt like... so they felt so natural and so easy with each other as these mm-hmm. characters in their settings. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I feel like for me, as much as those films were not the strongest version of themselves, especially the second one, um, I do feel very strongly for me. I feel like those two, as a romantic interest in the superhero genre, I feel like them for me are like I feel like the best example maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of it's it's kind of them two and Pepper and Tony, I guess. Um, and I would say to a certain extent, Jane and and four from the first four movie. Um, also, MJ and Peter from the first trilogy. Um, mm-hmm. Even though even though I would definitely admit that those films do kind of um, make her MJ the damsel in the stress three too many times <laughs> you know um yeah but yeah I, but i would definitely say for me i feel like emma stone and andrew garfield's chemistry and not only the chemistry but the writing of those scenes because they are like pre-written scenes we forget this because they're so well acted and so well staged and blocked and choreographed and just there's so much going on in those scenes that are so more dynamic than you know the scene in which peter goes to an underground subway car and learns about his father's death or whatever mm-hmm. um, i mean it's a great. It's a, I would. I could watch on loop that scene for um, that scene in the second film when they meet again after like a good few months, I guess. Um, and it's like they're walking in the park having ice cream, and it's sort of this back and forth of you. If if we want to be friends, you can't do this, and we, if we're going to be friends, you can't do that. And there, there's like a moment where it kind of accidentally reveals that he's kind of been keeping tabs on her, and it's kind of like a a weirdly kind of sweet moment um but also kind of just and i feel like it could have came off really weird but having them two actors be so comfortable with each other and act it so well i mean just so well mm. is amazing and having it ending with her death is it, it makes that movie feel like it was going somewhere even though it was clearly not going anywhere <laughs> mm. um i think and, like, it's, it's clear that the actual creatives, like the two lead actors and the director as well, were able to actually do what they're good at. Yeah, because yeah, we've talked on you or you've spoken on Instagram about um, one of Mark Webb's previous films. Mm-hmm. The um, I forgot what it's called now. The summer one. The thing is, three hundred oh. days of summer. Five hundred days of summer. Five hundred days of summer. That's it. Yeah. Um, where you know relationships between characters. And him being able to show that in this film, mm-hmm. again, one of, the, one of the strengths. It's it's easily the thing you can tell from even watching, it. even if you don't even care about how films are made at all. If you're watching those films, instantly you know what the director cares about when you see those scenes in the film. Um, it's so obvious that those are the scenes that Mark Webb wants to shoot, and he wants to perfect, and he wants to get right and pace it well. Um, and I don't blame them because it's so good when they're on screen. Um, and I, I heard it from someone, I forget, I think it was a YouTube channel called High Top Films. And he was saying that it's one of those rare cases in studio Hollywood filmmaking where if you just got Mark Webb, Emma Stone, Andrew Garfield and a camera, it would have been the best Spider-Man film ever made, <laughs> you know. But... You add Sony and a big budget and all this and then a franchise and a universe and all this setup stuff you got to do. It gets all kind of buried under its own weight for some reason. That was just pointless overall. Um, but yeah, the death scene is still to this day crushing, you know, because they're so good. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my other ones, really tiny one. But as an opening scene, Angel trimming his wings in X Men Three. Mm, yeah, yeah. Like little um, little kid Angel. I forgot his name. The character's real name. 
Um, it's some it, people are gonna be screaming. I'm never the one. But yeah, um, I know the actor is Ben Foster. Actually, no, the actor isn't Ben Foster. Ben Foster's the older version. Never. Mind. Oh just, yeah. Just ignore what I've just said. Yeah, just ignore it all. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Angel's trimming his wings because he's afraid his billionaire father's gonna hate him for being a mutant. As they do. <laughs> um, which is really be- brutal as well with the sound design of it as well. Oh yeah. Having a knife against his bones. <laughs> I know, yeah. And as a kid, that was terrifying. Mm-hmm. Again, and yeah, yeah, like another film that's terrifying me from my childhood. That's what this episode's been for me. Optimus Prime's death, Gwen Stacy's death, and Angel grating up against his wings. <laughs> yeah. Um, all nightmare-inducing scenarios. Yeah, so, I think that's a really well-done scene in an otherwise messy film. Yeah, it's. I guess I would. I wouldn't call that film as messy as, um, Amazing Spider-Man Two, but still, like, we're doing the Dark Phoenix saga again. Saga, <laughs> alongside, <laughs> alongside a mutant cure plotline, which is a pretty big thing, um, and we're doing that in a two-hour narrative. Are we sure about this? <laughs> and what we're also going to do? We're going to have more characters. Yeah, we have all the mutants you could ever want. Why? <laughs> We're going to kill Xavier and then bring him back in the post credit scene. And it's going to be fun. <laughs> um, and then the final one I had, again, another tiny one. Um, Jurassic Park 2. Oh? The trailer sequence. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. Dinosaurs throw a trailer over the top and you've got um, Mark Goldblum and Julianne Moore. Uh, yeah, it is, yeah. Oh, and Vince Vaughn. oh yeah, Vince Vaughn's in that. Yeah, for a bit. <laughs> um, yeah, so yes, that's another good sequence. It's a good Jurassic Park type sequence in yeah. a film that is very... I, I wouldn't say bad, I'd say it's just fine. It lacks the, I guess, the... The like awe of the first one, I guess. Yeah, I'd uh, I, I, I use the exact same word. Yeah, it's. I guess on. I guess by design, I guess it's a bit more morbid and kind of depressing. <laughs> um, hmm. But yeah, I kind of. I have to admit, I do kind of. I wouldn't say love, but I do like that film quite a bit. Um, and for me, I guess it's the only Jurassic Park sequel that I kind of in my mind, count as an actual sequel. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's by far the best Jurassic Park sequel. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, I... this one and, and to some degree, the third one, I don't mind them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the films, that, the sequels, we don't need them. They're a little bit messy. They don't necessarily have a, a through plot in them. Mm. But if it's on, I'll watch it. However, the second film had one of my favourite transition shots of all time. <laughs> um, it gets pointed out a lot, but that scene in the beginning where we see these little tiny dinosaurs maybe attack a little a little girl, and then it goes from a shot of the mother like screaming, like like as she probably sees her daughter get killed or whatever, um, and it cuts from that to Jeff Goldblum sitting on a, on a bench with a beach behind him, like a beach on the wall behind him, and him yawning, like recreating the screaming face. Um, <laughs> and then that scream turns into the train, uh, the train like screeching to a halt as he gets on the train. It's, it, it, I just love that shot so much. It's so like just, he didn't have to do that, but it's really cool that he did. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, I feel like that film, second one especially, is just, you know, it's filled with so many Steven Spielberg isms, you know, um, that I can't help but like enjoy it on that level at least compared to Jurassic World or even the third one where it's just kind of dinosaurs fight each other for a bit and we have yeah. doing quips. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I enjoy it. I don't think it's the best sequel. Um, yeah, it it just I think it probably classifies as disappointing because it's not the first one. Yeah. But it's got a tour to fall, follow, basically. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, that's that's all of mine. Yeah, saying I'm done as well, yeah. It's been, it's been a short one. Yeah, I guess it has been, yeah. One out of ten. <laughs> yeah. We could um, this one. Sorry? 
recorded on this one in the studio. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know back, back in the studio days where studio we had to do the final five. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. What a weird time period that actually happened. Back when we were unprofessional, which has completely changed. Are we calling ourselves professional now? Because <laughs> I, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to wrap up? Yeah, we can do. Do you want to close us off? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so thank you for listening, if you have been for this long. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so we have Instagram page at Marvel Listener Podcast, where we are reviewing currently the DC films. We are from Superman 1978 to Birds of Prey, I guess. Um, we are going through all the DC films that are like mainstream popular ones, I guess. Not like, you know, Steel <laughs> with Shaquille O'Neal. Um, uh, and <laughs> never steal steal <laughs> yeah there's a film called steal um with Shaquille O'Neal the basketball player and I think it's a DC film um not good don't worry about it don't how's, worry about how's it how's steel spelled like s-t-e-e-l <laughs> IMDB doesn't even list it fair enough um, what's it actually called sorry s-t-e-e-l just steal the the basketball player. Oh, Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> Shaquille. Came out in the nineties. Oh, that. Yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, god. <laughs> Just mentioning, we're not doing those ones. You know, we're not doing like the Catwoman's. You know. No, um, not. we're doing the main ones. Yeah, the Nolan trilogy, the Zack Snyder, the. Timber and yeah, Donners, yeah, whatever, you know, we're doing all those. Yeah. Um, and at Cinema Marvelous, our Twitter page, uh, we're doing the same thing over there, just you know, Twitter form. Um, yeah, give us a review on iTunes, I guess, or Google, maybe. Um, any, yeah, any, just anything. Yeah, do what you want, it's, all, it's up to you. Um, yeah, good night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Yeah. Bye. Bye.